blessings to my Bridges family and others on this Resurrection Sunday. Let me get, begin by acknowledging my deep sadness that we cannot be together. There's great joy when the body of Christ gathers at any time, but Easter special, celebrating together the triumphant resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is one of the highlights of the year. This year, however, we, we cannot come together. People throughout the Inland Empire didn't come together for sunrise service on Mount Rubido for the first time, I believe, since 1909. And as a church, we're unable to have our traditional Easter Sunday outdoor breakfast. We'll not be hosting our Easter egg hunt for our children. And, and of course, we won't gather together in our sanctuary to proclaim the truth that Jesus Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. And because of this, it's right to feel sorrow for our loss. But sorrow cannot be our only or, or even primary response to this or any situation. The Apostle Paul, in the midst of, of difficult circumstances, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger, he says that he lives as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Yes, our circumstances may cause us at times to experience sorrow, but as believers in Jesus Christ, there is always reason to rejoice. Sorrow is temporary, but joy can be and should be the underlying emotion in all circumstances. We are commanded to rejoice always. How can we do that, you ask? Well, let me put it in mathematical terms. Our ability to rejoice is directly proportional to our ability to trust in God. What I mean by that is the more we trust in God's sovereign control over all things, including our circumstances, and the more we trust in God's great love for us, that He is working all things together for our good, the more we can, even in times of sorrow, rejoice. Therefore, to experience more joy, to grow in our ability to rejoice, we need to grow in our ability to trust in God's love and sovereignty. And for me, there's nothing that declares God's love louder than the crucifixion of His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This is pointing us to Good Friday. God gave His only Son to die in our place, to take on the punishment, the wrath of God that we deserved, to become a sacrifice for our sins. At the cross, we find the, the love of God just shining forth. And then comes Resurrection Sunday. As the crucifixion declares the love of God, the re resurrection declares the sovereignty of God. In the resurrection, we see God's great power. The grave could not hold him, or, or, for he is the Lord and master of all things. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? And the answer comes nowhere, because death has been defeated. Satan, sin, and death must submit to the sovereign power of the Creator God. The resurrection declares God's great power, His control, His sovereignty over all things, including the difficult circumstances we're experiencing now because of this COVID-19 virus. So maybe today, like me, your circumstances are causing you to experience 
sorrow. But let us not allow our sorrow to dominate. My desire, my goal, my hope for each and every person listening to this recorded uh, Easter Sunday message is that we today and beyond, that we will know both the love and the sovereignty of God, that we will be a people like no other, a people who can rejoice always. And so with that in mind, on this resurrection Easter Sunday, I'm going to declare from God's word the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My hope and prayer is that as we examine this unprecedented event in human history, that our ability to trust in both God's love and sovereignty will grow, that, that we can in all circumstances rejoice in the resurrection. Now, the historical account of the resurrection is found in, in all four biographies of Jesus' life, the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But today we're going to be looking mainly at John's account. I chose this account because in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, the end of the chapter, following the, the record of the resurrection at the beginning of the chapter, John tells us the purpose for his gospel. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose is to present his account of Jesus' life in such a way that people will believe, that people will trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, by believing, and by believing, they receive life in his name. And the way he seeks to convince his readers that Jesus is the Christ is by recording the signs that Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, by showing again and again uh, that Jesus is a, is a conduit for the sovereign power of the Lord, and therefore Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, we don't have time to look at all these signs in detail, but let me just mention them. John records seven plus one signs. I'll, I'll explain that in a second. First, in John chapter 2, Jesus changed water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Second, John 4, he healed the royal officer's official son. Third, John chapter 5, he healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethsaida in Jerusalem. Fourth, in John chapter 6, he heals, he feeds the multitudes. And then fifth, in John chapter 6, he walked on water. Sixth, John chapter 9, he healed the man born blind. And, and seventh, in John 11, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Those are the seven signs that, that Jesus himself performed, that John records. And then we come to the plus one, the one we'll focus on today, the resurrection. This was the greatest and the final sign, performed not by Jesus specifically, but performed by God the Father. And with all things, there can be no doubt of God's sovereignty, God's control over all things. John saw Jesus die on the cross. He heard Jesus' final words, it is finished. And he, like all of Jesus' disciples, was devastated, sorrowful beyond measure. But then... Three days later, John and others witnessed the resurrected Christ. And the resurrection changed everything. It turned their doubts 
to faith. It turned their sorrow to joy. It turned their fear to boldness. And it can do the same for us if we see and believe the great sign, the sign of the resurrection, if we grasp the reality of the resurrection. That's our first point this morning, the reality of the resurrection. And by reality, I mean the truth of the resurrection. We need to know that this sign of the resurrection is an actual historical event. Because if we're, not going, to, if we're going to trust in God's sovereignty, if, if we're going to believe that He not only loves us, but is in control of all of our circumstances, then we must have a firm conviction of the reality of the resurrection. This is the very heart of our faith. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, but if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ did not rise, then your faith, your belief, your trust in Jesus Christ is is vanity. Our preaching is vanity. What I'm doing here and what is happening across the globe on Easter Sunday is vanity. There's no point in believing in Jesus Christ. There is no eternal life in His name. And you and I and all people have absolutely no reason to rejoice, even a little bit, let alone always. But thanks be to God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a reality. God is sovereign, and therefore we as his children can rejoice always. Now you might ask, how do I know the resurrection is real? How do I know it's true? And I'd answer because I've seen the evidence that John that Matthew, Mark, and Luke provide in their historical accounts of Jesus' life. And I believe, and you can too. So let's turn to John's eyewitness testimony. In chapter 20 of his gospel, he gives us two major pieces of evidence for the reality of the resurrection. First, he presents the empty tomb. Verse 1, John begins his testimony of the resurrection uh, like this. Now, on the first day of the week, this is the first Easter Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. In their gospels, uh, Mark and and Luke tell us that that other women were there with Mary. They came early to anoint Jesus' body. John says that Mary saw that the stone had been taken away. The Greek word there for saw is is just the ordinary word that means seeing something with your eyes. You beheld it. I point this out because John will go on to use two other Greek words that, that in our English Bibles we still translate as saw, but they have deeper meanings. But here he's just reporting what happened. Mary saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And this is a huge deal for Mary because she knows that Pilate, the governor of Judea, the one who ordered uh, Jesus' crucifixion at the request of the Jewish religious leaders had also ordered the tomb to be secured. Soldiers were sent to seal and guard the tomb, but Mary sees that the stone has been rolled away. And in verse 2 we read, So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we, uh, speaking of herself and the other women, do not know where they have laid him. The other disciple who Jesus loved, by the way, is, is John himself. That's how he refers to himself in his gospel. 
Now, it's clear that Mary and these other women did not expect the tomb to be open, and they certainly didn't expect the tomb to be empty. Resurrection wasn't on their mind. So Mary's first thought is not Jesus has risen from the dead. Uh, She's distressed. She's sorrowful because she thinks they, uh, Jesus' enemies, have taken the Lord out of the tomb. So she runs to the disciples to get them, and she, uh, and she tells them what she thinks is, is bad news. And in verse 3 we read, So Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John arrives first. He was probably younger, better shape. Verse 5, And stooping to look in, look in he, John, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now that word saw there is the same one used when when Mary saw that the tomb was empty, the tomb was opened. At first John saw with his eyes the linen, and he he didn't go in. Now Peter is very different. Here he comes, huffing and puffing from behind uh, John, and in verse 6 we read, Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, where John looked and didn't go in, Peter went in before he looked. John is cautious, checking things out, and Peter, in typical fashion, wanting to be first, rushes in without much thought. Verse 6 continues, he, Peter, saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face of the cloth, which had been on Jesus, Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Now here John uses a different word for Peter's seeing. The word saw here means not just seeing with your eyes, but looking at something carefully, critically. It's the Greek word thereo, where we get our English word theory, to go into something thoroughly and work it out for yourself. Peter goes in and doesn't just see with his eyes, but he begins to look carefully and critically at the evidence before him. So what did he find? He found an empty tomb. The body was gone. But the grave clothes were still there in in neatly ordered condition. This may seem like a minor detail, but it's, it's really very important. You see, one of the main arguments against the resurrection is that someone stole the body. But if, grave, but if the grave clothes are still, still neatly in place, then the idea of anyone, whether it be grave robbers or the Jewish leaders, the disciples, Romans, the idea of anyone taking the body is just highly unlikely. Why? Because, because if someone had taken the body, they wouldn't uh, have taken time to tidy up. More than likely, they, they would have scattered the grave clothes around the tomb. And even more likely... Remember how Jesus was killed, how he was crucified. His body was battered and bloody. They wouldn't have removed the the linen cloths from the body at all. It would have been much easier and cleaner to transport the body if it were still wrapped. So when Peter and John find the tomb empty, they consider the evidence. And the text is unclear as to Peter's immediate conclusion. But in verse 8, It makes it clear what John concluded. Verse 8, John chapter 20. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that's John, also went in, and he saw and believed. Here's the third Greek word for saw. This word doesn't just mean seeing with your eyes or or even looking into, into something carefully and critically as with a theory. 
It means seeing and understanding. We use, we use the English word see in this way uh, quite often. For example, uh, this week, Christina and I watched the, the movie Knives Out. It's a murder mystery, uh, but, but from the beginning of the movie, you think you know who did it. But there comes a point when you realize who the actual killer is. Uh, no spoilers here, but uh, you think at that moment, you think, oh, now I see. Now I understand who really did it. That's the saw that John uses for himself in verse 8. Not just that I saw the fact that the body was gone, but I saw the fact and I understood its meaning, and therefore I believe that Jesus has risen. For John, resurrection was the only explanation that fit the facts of the empty tomb, of the, how the cloths, the clothes, the, the wrappings were found. Then he adds in verses nine, verse 9 and 10, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. For me, this provides added validity to John's account because he admits his own weakness, uh, that he and the other disciples didn't understand the Scriptures. If they had, then, then they would have known. They would have not been fearful and in hiding. They would have known that Jesus would rise from the dead even before they saw the empty tomb. But in the tomb, John says, I saw, I understood, and finally, I believe. So what about you? If you're not a, a believer in Jesus Christ, if you don't believe in his resurrection from the dead, then how do you explain John's eyewitness testimony of this empty tomb? Well, you might be thinking, well, that's simple. There was actually no empty tomb. This is just a story made up by the followers of Jesus, specifically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They, along with others like Peter and Paul, they conspired to devise this myth of Jesus' resurrection. So you don't believe the evidence because you don't trust the witnesses. Now, there are several reasons why this just doesn't make sense. And if you want to study it further, I'd point you to one of the many books on the evidence, on evidence for the resurrection. I like Josh McDowell's book, uh, appropriately titled Evidence for the Resurrection. Or you can just Google Evidence for the Resurrection and you'll get a number of helpful articles. But for me, one piece of evidence stands above all, all else. That is, history tells us that these men who recorded the events of Jesus' life, including the resurrection, were persecuted and they were killed for their faith. John is the exception. They, they tried to kill him, and, and when they couldn't, they banned him to the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. But for the most part, if the resurrection is fiction, those who testified to its reality went to their graves, never recanting the lie that they had devised, never telling anyone that they had made up this, this story. Now, certainly people will die for a lie, it happens in our world often. Suicide bombers die because they, they believe it will earn them some kind of eternal reward. Or cult members have died because they believe their leader has some direct link to God and God is telling them to kill themselves. These and many others have died for lies. But the distinction is they, the, the disciples, the apostles, they didn't believe they were dying for lies. They died believing the lies were the truth. So the question is, what person would die for a lie that they knew was a lie? 
What's the point? What do they possibly have to gain? None of the disciples gained wealth or power or even fame in their day. All they gained were difficult lives filled with persecution that ended in death and martyrdom. And for a lie that they knew was a lie, I don't think so. And neither did mathematician and theologian Blaise Pascal, who said about the witnesses to the resurrection, I believe the witnesses that get their throats cut. How do you explain that the followers of this carpenter from Nazareth who was crucified under Pontius Pilate were transformed into men and women who were willing to preach the truth of the resurrection even when it meant their death? How do you account for these things? I believe it only makes sense if the tomb really was empty. And by seeing it firsthand, these witnesses actually believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Now again, you might say, well, maybe they believed it, but, uh, but it could have been an elaborate hoax on them. Maybe the tomb was empty, but, but that doesn't prove Jesus rose from the dead. Okay. But John doesn't stop with the empty tomb. He goes on to present the reality of the risen Christ. If you read further in John's account, or the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see that eventually all the disciples would encounter the risen Christ. But in our passage for today, the spotlight is on Mary Magdalene. She was apparently the first to meet Jesus after he rose. The empty tomb didn't cause Mary to believe like John had. And in verse 11, we read, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Mary's in great sorrow because she, she hasn't grasped the fact of the resurrection. And as she wept, she, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Apparently, Mary, Mary didn't see anything special about the angels. As far as she was concerned, they looked like two men uh, just wearing white. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? God often prepares the way for us to meet him through his messengers. And often the messengers of God, whether they are human or angelic, take us right to the point of our need. Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary is still coming to terms with the fact that the tomb is empty. The body's gone, and that causes her grief for Jesus' death to, to be even greater. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Often when we're in deep sorrow, when we can't make sense of what's happening in our, in our lives, the Lord Jesus is much closer than we can imagine, but we don't always see him. And even if we see him, we don't always recognize him. Mary was so overwhelmed with grief, she didn't realize that Jesus was standing right there. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, "'Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking?' Jesus comes to Mary in her grief, but, but he doesn't come in an overpowering way. He doesn't say, here I am, Mary, I've risen from the dead. And he also doesn't rebuke her for her unbelief. He, he doesn't say, why are you so upset? Why are you crying? I told you this would happen. Why didn't you believe me? Instead, Jesus meets her where she is. He knows that her sorrow comes from her great love for him. And so he, he gently, with a few questions, seeks to open her eyes and mind to the reality of her situation. Why are you weeping? 
Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Again, Mary's love for Jesus is shining forth. She isn't making a lot of sense, though. Why would, why would she think the gardener took Jesus' body? And even if he did, how would she then take him away? Mary's overwhelmed with grief, and she just wants to make sure Jesus' body is taken care of. She's come out to anoint his body. And again, Jesus sees her heart and responds in love. Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus speaks her name. The text doesn't reveal the tone, but I can imagine the the love that came through Jesus' voice. Mary. That one word brings instant recognition. She's seen the empty tomb, and now she sees the risen Christ. Mary understands the reality of the resurrection. And now, uh, in Mary, we see the response to the resurrection. That's our second point. Mary's seen the signs. She's seen the empty tomb. She's seen the risen Christ. And her first response is to believe in Jesus. Verse 16 continues. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. You can almost hear the relief and the joy in that one word, Rabboni. Rabboni really really means more than teacher. The suffix N-I there on the end means my teacher, my master. It signifies submission and reverence. With that one word, Mary says, I believe that you, Jesus, are my teacher, my master. She puts her trust in Jesus Christ. She says, I will submit to him. I will honor him. Mary saw the signs, and the risen Christ called her name. And her response was to believe. What about you? Have you seen the signs? Have you had a personal encounter with the resurrected Christ? Has Jesus come to you in the midst of your sorrow, your grief? Is he calling your name this morning? Will you respond like John and believe? Like Mary who said to Jesus, Rabboni, my teacher, my master. Will you this day in faith submit your life to Jesus Christ, the risen Lord? Will you trust in the one who loved you enough to die in your place? The one who who is powerful enough to rise from the dead? the one who both provides you with eternal life in heaven and an abundant life of joy in his name right now. If that's your desire, then take a moment and and settle that in your heart now. Maybe whisper a prayer to the Lord, Jesus, I believe. I believe you died in my place and you rose from the dead. I trust you for my eternal salvation. And, And I trust you with the circumstances of my life. Be my Savior, my teacher, my master, my Lord. Thank you that because of your death and resurrection, even in my sorrow, I can rejoice in all things. Amen. Now, once Mary recognizes Jesus, she had another response. She believed. And probably at the same time, she begins to worship Jesus. Worship is implied when she she calls Jesus Rabboni. But Matthew says that Mary and the other women with her, uh, they came up, this is Matthew chapter 28, verse 9, they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Mary understood the signs. She knew Jesus was more than a good man. 
He was more than a, a mere teacher, a prophet even. She knew he was who he claimed to be, the Holy Son of God. And so she held on to his feet and worshiped him. And in verse 17 we read, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now this is one of those uh, difficult passages Many opinions, many thoughts about what's going on here. It wasn't that Jesus didn't want to be worshipped. It wasn't that his body was somehow, uh, uh, you were unable to touch it at this point. Later in this chapter, he would encourage Thomas to touch his wombs, the wombs in his hands and feet. What Jesus probably meant is this. Do not think, Mary, that, that by clinging to me, you can keep me with you. The lasting fellowship that you want must wait until I've ascended to be with the Father. Fellowship would be resumed, but it would be a far richer and more blessed experience. Jesus continues, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus says, I'm returning to my Father, but this is good news. This is good news of great joy, for he is now your Father and your God. You've trusted in me, and now the God of heaven is your Father. He's your God. Jesus knew that because of the crucifixion and the resurrection, a new day had come. He knew that when he ascended, he would, he would turn and then send the Holy Spirit to live within his people. We can now have a new kind of relationship with God and a deeper worship of God. We can worship God as He desires, as we were meant to. Uh, we can worship in spirit and in truth. We can worship God not just with words, but with our very lives. For God is no longer distant. There is no separation because of sin. His spirit is, is within you. It dwells within you. He can now be your Father and your God. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died. And that's why Jesus rose again. Yes, that we might be saved from our sin. But more than that, we are saved into an eternal worship-filled relationship with God. To paraphrase John Piper, Jesus died and rose again to create white-hot, spirit-filled worshipers. And it's in this worship-saturated relationship with God that we receive fullness of joy. That's what David wrote in Psalm 16. In your presence, in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we enter into an eternal worship-filled relationship with God. He gives us fullness of joy. He gives us pleasures forevermore. But he also gives us a task to complete. Along with belief in Jesus and, and worship of Jesus, we are to proclaim Jesus. This is modeled for us by Mary in verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Jesus has commanded her in verse 17 to go to my, bro my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. She'd seen the empty tomb. She'd encountered the risen Christ, the risen Christ, and she believed. And as Jesus always does, he commissions those who believe to go and tell others. And so for those of us who've seen and, and believed, whether you've believed today or you believed 30 years ago, we are commissioned to proclaim the gospel. 
the good news of Jesus Christ, that through his crucifixion and resurrection, he's provided reconciliation with God. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Through the crucifixion and the resurrection, God reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, the church, to his people, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. As those like Mary who have been reconciled to God, we have been entrusted with this message of reconciliation. And it's through our proclamation of this message that God brings others into reconciliation with himself. Through your proclamation of the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, the reality of what the empty tomb means, the reality of your personal encounter with Jesus Christ, what you believe, who you worship, you now must proclaim. That's what Mary and John and Peter and all of Jesus' disciples did. And that's what we must continue to do as well. Now, in our current uh, situation it may be a little more difficult. In this unprecedented situation, proclamation may be a, a little more challenging than usual, but it's not impossible. And in some ways, it may be easier. I've noticed that people are thinking in these days uh, and talking a lot more about their mortality, a lot more about life and death. And some people are, are, are stuck at home. They're, they're frankly bored. A phone call, a Skype, or a Zoom meeting with a friend an email or a letter, a text to a family member, sending a link to a gospel-focused article or a sermon to a co-worker, an act of, uh, of certainly keeping your social distance uh, service to, to a neighbor. Even in our isolation, we can continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of great joy that is for all peoples, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead, conquering death, providing victory over sin. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice, that, that Christ died and rose for you. Rejoice in the resurrection. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you. We rejoice. We rejoice now this morning. We rejoice and we thank you. Our gratitude overflows this Easter morning for all you've done for us, for your death for us. Lord, for your death that proved and showed your amazing love and then your resurrection that that showed your sovereignty. Lord, we, we thank you that you're in control. You're in control right now. You're in control of our world, and we need not fear. We can turn to you. We may not understand, but we can turn to you, Lord. And I pray for those out here hearing this message, Lord. I pray that they would turn to you, maybe for the first time, maybe again and again, that we would turn to you and trust in you and, and live for you. Lord, we thank you so much for all you've done for us. In Christ's name. Amen. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.